0: And would your kingdom be advanced. to your, your name we pray this, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning again. You know, as I was preparing the sermon, there, it struck me that there are some mysteries in life that will likely go forever unanswered. What was the greatest thing before sliced bread? If a turtle has no shell, is he homeless or naked? Um, why do they lock bathroom? Why do they lock gas station bathrooms? Are, are they afraid someone's going to clean it? I, I don't, <laughs> never figured that out. And here is one for us today. Why would Jesus tell us to pray to God? that God would not lead us into temptation. Why would God lead me into temptation? I mean, I can find it on my own. Thanks, right? This one trip I don't need Google Maps for. I got this. Maybe we haven't really thought about it. Perhaps we have grown so accustomed to the words and rhythms of the Lord's Prayer that this phrase that we're going to be looking at today trips over our lips without our minds being fully engaged. If so, we're going to correct that today, hopefully. But we are going to take a good, hard look at what Jesus is talking about when he says to uh, not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from, from evil. We're going to take a good, hard look. Because after all, this is Jesus telling us, right? And therefore, maybe, oh, I don't know, we should get a handle on what this means. Now, one way of interpreting what Jesus is doing is what I just did. In understatement, you probably caught that. If Jesus is telling us how to pray, might be good for us to get a handle on the meaning of that. And, uh, and of course, an understatement highlights by contrast a little bit of how true or how important this statement is. I've heard guys describe a very attractive woman by saying, well, she ain't ugly. You know, good understatement. Or someone might introduce a quote by Einstein. Well, this guy kind of knew what he was talking about sometimes. So one way of interpreting this phrase, lead us not into temptation, is to view it as as sort of a a Semitic, that means basically ancient Jewish, or Jewish in this case, um, idiom utilizing an understatement. And I think that that is probably right. But it doesn't answer all the questions about this. For the text before us has two ambiguities that we need to explore to understand what Jesus is talking about. Now, for those of you who for those of you who went to IU, an ambiguity is a word or a statement that can be interpreted more than one way. Might as well have a little bit of fun here. We'll get more serious in a second. These are actual headlines uh, that people have, that newspapers and whatnot have put up, or at least the internet told me that they're actual headlines, and the internet's never wrong. Oh, how about if I turn this on? That would be helpful. There we go. Ambiguous headlines: Kids make nutritious snacks. <laughs> Grandmother of eight makes hole in one. Now, if you don't laugh now, but a couple of seconds later, I'm just going to judge you on your mental acuity here. Milk drinkers are turning to powder. Drunk gets nine months in violin case. Queen Mary having bottom scraped. I like this one. Red tape holds up new bridge. Juvenile court to try shooting defendants. Complaints about NBA referees growing ugly. Um, All right, enough of that. (laughs) I'm going to assume that these are ambiguities that are happy accidents. But sometimes an ambiguity is purposeful and intentional. I heard Mark Twain respond to a friend by saying, thank you for sending me your new book. I will waste no time in reading it. Um, Or think of this situation. You're asked to give an employee reference. I was asked to give one for Abby this week. And uh, so this comes to mind, you know, what do you do when you have an employee that you really can't recommend, but at the same time you can't be too, no, that's not you. (laughs) (laughs) I was really nice with you. I'm just saying it brought the concept to mind. When you do have an employee, you can't recommend for whatever reason, But you can't be too honest about that either because these days you might get blowback, right? So what do you do? You create some ambiguity. For an employee who is habitually absent, a man like him is hard uh, hard to find. For a lazy worker, you would indeed be fortunate to get this person to work for you. For a dishonest employee, her true ability was deceiving. For the office drunk, every hour with him was a happy hour. For a stupid employee, I most enthusiastically recommend this candidate with no qualifications whatsoever. <laughs> and again, you can read these in two ways, right? Now, here's where we start to get a little bit more into the text. Uh, the Bible has a lot of ambiguities, and I, I believe intentional ambiguities. I, I, I won't go over all of them because it would take us too far afield. Let me just give you one example. Ephesians 1, Paul prays that we... Would, would know certain things in our prayers. He's praying for us to understand and grasp certain things that we need to understand in order to grow spiritually, become more like Christ. And one of those things, he says, is, I pray that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his saints. Now, that is an ambiguous phrase in Greek as well as in English. Does he mean the, the, that we are God's inheritance and, and he rejoices in us? That he finds joy and richness in thinking of us being his inheritance and looking for that time where we are with him. Or does it mean that that he is our inheritance and, and it's a joyful inheritance and then we look forward to that time when we are with him? That this life is not the end, there is something we receive beyond this and it's beautiful, it's glorious, and we need prayer to understand just how wonderful it is. Well, you know, Paul, if he wanted to make clear which one it was, he was a smart guy. He was fully capable of doing that. But what I think is happening is there is a deliberate, deliberate ambiguity because those two things are both true in Scripture, and they're both the two sides of the same coin. All right. So let's come back to, um, to our text here. There are actually two ambiguities in this, in this passage. And the first centers around the word that's usually translated temptation. The Greek word is prosmos. So sometimes it is translated as a test or a trial. God allows trials in order to refine us. And sometimes it refers to a temptation, a temptation to sin. The second part of the ambiguity turns around the phrase, deliver us from evil. And the Greek word for evil is porneia. We get the word pornography from that. But that's... In English, you know, that's not what they meant by the term. It just meant a broad term for evil. And in fact, in the Bible, many times this is referring not to moral evil at all. It just means the problems and the trouble and the suffering that we face in life. These are the evil that comes upon us. And I think this is what had what David had in mind, for example, Psalm 23, you know, you will protect me from, from evil. I will fear no evil because you are with me. But oftentimes, it also means sin or moral evil. And uh, and so it can be a word that can be used for that as well. That's why many translations put that as temptations. Now, you will notice here then, you will notice that the ambiguity in both cases kind of goes along with each other. In one case, God is... If we take it this way, then this is troubles or trials that God is allowing to come into our life in order to refine us. And that's really the first great truth that we'll talk about here in a second. And the second meaning, the second way you could interpret this is of course temptation. And this and in this sense, Satan's tempts us in order to defile us. First great truth, then about this, and this is going to underline the, the ambiguity. It's going to show us what each side means in a sense. First, and we may need reminding of this, God will allow trials and pain and suffering, physical or mental, in our lives to refine us. And they hurt. But that hurt, however, is not random. It's not out of God's mean streak. No, they exist purposefully for our good. To make us more pure, more strong than we were, stronger than we were before. Let me uh, show you a picture here. Anybody know what this is? A rock. A rock. Thank you. Granite. Granite. Good guess. It's actually silver ore. So of course, when you're mining silver or gold, for that matter. You don't get a a vein of pure silver right there before you that looks like, you know, the silver we're used to. It looks something like this. Now, how do you get from that to a ring that's 9.25% pure? Well, here's how you do it. There has to be someone who refines the silver by taking out all the impurities. And that's the picture that God sometimes uses, that he is a silversmith or goldsmith who refines us, lets us go through the pain, not because we're not valuable, but because we are. You don't refine dirt. You refine silver or gold. Malachi 3.3 says, He will sit as a refiner of silver over his people. This verse puzzled some women who were in a Bible study. They wondered what this statement meant about God and his ways with us. And so one of the women offered to find out about the process of refining silver and get back to the group. So she called the silversmith and made an appointment to watch him at work. She didn't explain anything about why, other than she was just curious about the process. And as she watched the silversmith, he held a piece of silver over the fire and let it heat up. And he explained that in refining silver... One needed to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flames were hottest, as to burn away all the impurities. The woman thought about God holding us in such a tight, uh, such a hot spot, and she thought again about that verse He sits as a refiner and purifier of silver over His people. And so she asked the silversmith, Is it true you have to sit there the whole time the silver is being refined? And the man answered, Yes. In fact, uh, he not only had to sit there, but he had to keep his eye on the silver the whole time, lest it become too hot to be destroyed. The woman was silent for a few moments, and then she asked the silversmith one last question. How do you know when the silver is fully refined? And he smiled and said, oh, well, that part's easy. It's when I see the reflection of my face in it. Yeah. And that's our calling, right? That we are called to be not just us in the sinful, impure state where there's good and bad mixed together. There's value, yes, but so many impurities, but rather become like Jesus Christ himself. The process then is something like this. God allows the testing. We turn to God for help, and we find God's help in some way. It very often is involved Calming the storm, as the song puts it, or sometimes calming the child, us. And in the midst of that, we understand ways that we need to be purified, and we ask God to further that process within us. After all, a trial is a terrible thing to waste. Basically, then, this prayer is asking God to protect me from trouble, or at least more trouble than I can handle. And when I do find myself in the trouble, it's asking God to deliver me from it, to calm the storm or calm me, and through this process, to refine me. Now, this is the attitude of someone, a man or a woman who knows who they are, that they are frail, that they cannot fix everything themselves, and that the pain and problems of this world can be overwhelming and result not in refinement, but something else. Something worse. They understand that they're they're like a bridge. You're seeing a bridge with the posted speed limit, you know. They understand they're like a bridge with that posted weight limit, not speed limit, weight limit. And the prayer is recognizing this, asking God to either keep an overweight truck off your bridge, or to increase your weight limit. So this is the first great truth, God will allow our testing. It is not a punishment. It is part of the way he purifies those he values. Now, the second part then is this, that Satan brings temptations in order to defile us. And this idea is one I suspect we're pretty familiar with, but it would be good to analyze the process here a bit. Satan, from my understanding, has three primary goals in your life and in my life, and three primary tools he will use to accomplish those goals in your life and my life. His goals are to separate us from God, I think I have a slide. to separate us from each other, and to separate us from our true life, our God-created destiny. And this is exactly what happened to the first couple, Adam and Eve, representing us and all of mankind. The sin was merely the method to get to the goals. The sin separated mankind from God, right? Because of their sin, they could no longer dwell within his within His presence. The sin separated them from each other. First thing Adam does, he blames the woman. Instead of taking ownership and leadership, he blames her. The very next chapter, one of their sons kills another of their sons. Sin is introduced, the separation from each other. And then sin separates us from life. Certainly, they had animal life, in a sense, in a body similar to to ours and the animals' after the fall, but their spirit life was gone, for that can only come through a connection with God. These are the three goals of the evil one. The tools he will use to accomplish these goals in our lives are lies, temptations, and condemnation, usually in that order. His lies to Eve, You're not going to die. God's holding out on you. This is for your betterment. Those lies gave force, power to the temptation, right? And then that brought the condemnation. Life, lies give force to temptation. Temptation then leads to to the sin that not only separates us from God, but the condemnation that keeps us from coming to God and receiving from him all that he desires and wants to bless us with. My wife was talking to a wonderful, godly young woman who's a friend of ours. And this, this young woman was contemplating an opportunity that would be a real blessing for her. And she, she really wanted to do this, but she was holding back from pursuing it. And she said this, she felt like she didn't deserve this blessing because of her sin. Now, in her case, it was a particular sin that she had committed eight, ten years ago before she was even a Christian. That broke my heart. But I get it. I often feel I can't come to God. I can't draw near to him because of my, my sin, my failures, not living up to what I should be. And there's a sense of condemnation that keeps me from God. I get it. So I have to preach to myself this lavish grace of God. I had to remind myself, preach to myself again and again. But there is no condemnation for me now. That God took all that into account when he decided to save me in ages past. So, in this scenario of the temptation to sin, oh, behind the slide. Oh, by the way, I love this verse. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Good place to think about that here, because in every sense, God is doing the opposite. He comes to Bring us to God to restore that relationship Horizontally though there's also This reconciliation of this new humanity And then he comes to bring Life as he says it in John He brings a a different kind of life And the way he does This is Instead of lies he tells us the truth Instead of temptation he gives us uh, Truth and, and Ways to serve him Instead of condemnation he gives us acceptance And comfort So In this situation, what we're saying, basically when we say, uh, lead me not into this kind of temptation, but deliver me from the evil one, God, grant me the eyes to see the lies that I'm believing right now or have believed. Grant me the eyes to see the lies of the evil one so I don't give in to that temptation and face the sin and the condemnation that comes about. Don't let the lies and the temptations be too strong for me. Guard him. Guard me. Block his work. Or make me strong and wise. Rescue me from the cunning plans of this enemy of my soul. Do you pray this way? For yourself or for other people? So, these are the two ways to understand the prayers that Jesus teaches us. Keep trouble or trials far from me. or when they do come, strengthen me, refine me, and keep the lies and temptations of the evil one, guard me from his plans. Now, as I said, I think this is a deliberate, deliberate ambiguity because Jesus was the wisest man who ever lived, the greatest communicator who ever lived, and if he wanted to choose only one side of the coin, he fully could have done that. But I think he deliberately phrases it in an ambiguity because... We need both. The, the, the difficulties we face in our spiritual life, in our emotional life, sometimes are from the, the suffering and the pain because life is not what we want it to be. And that gap between what we want it to be and where it is can seem so huge and so painful. On the other hand, we also need protection from the evil one. It says in Ephesians 6, we are, we are in a battle against him and we need that protection from God. Jesus is saying that there will be things that happen tomorrow or next week or next year that we need to be prepared for. Things in the future that have the potential to weaken us and defile us and poison us. But if some of these things are in the future, how can we be prepared? Our our eyes can't pierce the veil, but God's can. And so we prepare by prayer. We ask God to help us and guide us. Prayer is the way. Prayer is the way that we receive his protection and guidance and strength and wisdom. Prayer is the way not because God is unwilling to grant us and he has to be cajoled into this. No. Prayer is the way because the kind of prayer of the Lord's Lord's prayer draws us to God. And you know, there are a lot of gifts of God that he cannot give us apart from himself. Sometimes because they'd be like, you remember the story of King Midas? He wanted everything he touched to turn to gold. He finally got his his wish granted, and it was great fun for about 20 minutes until he got hungry, or until his daughter came in to give him a hug. And sometimes God answering our prayers apart from him would be like that. But, But there's something else at play here. Why do we have to pray for these things? Because sometimes God can't separate the gift from the giver. We, we, for example, we need wisdom. Why do we need wisdom? And uh, if you don't think you need wisdom, you really need wisdom uh, from God because we don't have enough of our, on our own. But the problem is this. God's wisdom doesn't consist of dropping thought bubbles or fortune-cooking seeds from the sky, right? How does God grant wisdom? He grants it by allowing us to understand and share in communion his mind, his thoughts, his values. It's as we come to God and share his mind and draw closer to him that we gain the wisdom. It's a, it's a gift with the giver, not something apart from him by its very nature. All right, so let's begin to wrap this up in a few ways that we can apply this. First, I'm going to have three things here. Remember, this is, this is so great. So simple, but so great. Remember that you have a father. You are not an orphan. Jesus teaches us, and this is part of the Lord's Prayer, that we begin by acknowledging you are my father in heaven. You're not an orphan. Just as you had or have an earthly father, you have beyond this a heavenly father. We don't remember that sometimes. But as we pray the Lord's Prayer, it's designed to provoke in us that understanding and deepen that. Second, so, actually I have a slide for this, right? Seek his help and protection for trials and temptations, both present and future. We need to make this a part of our daily prayer. Because I'm willing to guess (laughs) that for many of us, that part about "Give us our daily bread, our material needs, that is kind of dominating our whole prayer life. Jesus teaches us, though, that we do have physical material needs. We can ask God for it. He cares. But we also have these spiritual needs. We need need forgiveness. Forgive us our debts, Father. And we have these moral needs of protection and help and strength and guidance. And we need those just as much. Think about the trials or temptations you're already in. The things where life is not what you want it to be. Bring that to God again and again. Even if you don't sense God answering the prayers that you want, keep bringing it to him. Well, and then ask God to show you temptations. See, part of our self-deception, part of our human pride is that we are not fully aware of how often we give in to the lies of the evil one. Part of the reason they're lies is because we don't understand them as lies. Otherwise, we probably would reject them more fully. So we're asking God to show us, all right, what lies am I believing about this situation, about myself or about you, about my happiness with you, about life? Ask me, or ask him to show you what those lies are and how Satan is using that to tempt you. Ask God to protect you from trials and temptations in the future. Something maybe you don't know anything about right now. Right? In, in uh, Ephesians 6, our warfare is not against people. We need reminders of that, especially in an election year, right? It's not against flesh and blood. Our warfare is against the enemy, the spirit realms. And the thing is, we do not have direct access to that. We have access through God's spirit to what we need to know if we seek it. Finally, make this part, make this kind of prayer part of a pattern or a template of our prayer life to the Father. Now, remember, it's good to repeat the Lord's Prayer because it reminds us of this great teaching of Jesus, but it's designed not to be repeated in our prayer life. It's designed to be a template that we fill out. What are my daily needs that I need today? And what areas do I need to say to God, okay, in this, I'm struggling with this, but God, I want to give, I want your will to be done here and not mine. I want your name to be lifted up and not my image. I want your kingdom to come and not my agenda. And, and then flesh that out. Because I'm struggling with this, God. I'm struggling because this person doesn't appreciate me. I'm struggling because, you know, I, I, I'm not, as successful as I, as I want to be in this I'm struggling because I, I really want this agenda This part of my life to be The way it's not And I'm giving this to you So we make this a part Or a pattern of prayer And, and then We understand something As we go through this template We see the, Some beautiful truth here And this is appropriate as we wrap up The Lord's Prayer do you ever notice that this really there's kind of two divisions here? One is aligning myself with my Father. So I want your name and my, my not my image or, or my reputation to be exalted. Hallow your name. I want your kingdom to come, not my agenda. And I want your will to be done, even if it's not the same as my will right now. Now, what happens? When you pray this kind of prayer, not as a repetition,